Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management, online fundraising, and volunteer management software that helps small to medium nonprofits like First Tee of Greater Akron. After just one year with Boomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear their experience or visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising. It's about being able to sit with it. And I'm specifically talking about the hardest things that we go through in life. We have to really be willing to sit in the muck a little bit with our emotions. Welcome back to What the Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode is brought to you by our friends at GiveButter. Today, I'm interviewing Aaron Mashbitz. Aaron is the host of the Something for Everybody podcast and the founder of You Are Loved, a mental health nonprofit. Through his work, Aaron aims to create a supportive community and equip individuals with the tools they need to navigate their emotional well-being and foster meaningful relationships. And he has an incredibly moving story and painful story about what brought him to this work. In this conversation, Aaron shares how he discovered the power of vulnerability when tragedy struck and unexpectedly redirected his life. Through open and honest conversation, he has become a beacon of hope for those seeking solace and understanding, inspiring us to ask, what does it take to create meaningful connections and foster emotional validation in times of pain and loss? Before we dive in, I do want to put a trigger warning on this episode because we do talk about suicide, loss of a family member, grief, and other challenging topics. If you decide to keep listening, please do so with your mental health and well-being top of mind. These are important topics and challenging topics, so take care of yourself as you learn. All right, now let's dive in so you can meet Aaron. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Aaron Mashbitz. Aaron, welcome to What the Fundraising. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. I am really excited to chat with you as well. And we have a mutual friend in Donovan Taylor Hall, which I love. But why don't you tell everyone a little bit about you, what you do, and what brings you to our conversation today? Well, initially, yeah, like you mentioned, what brings me and you together is Donovan. I had him on my podcast, and I know you guys have connected and chatted. So a friend of his is a friend of mine and uh, like-minded people, you know, joining like-minded people to have great conversations. So that's initially what brought me here. And I always, I feel like I always struggle with this question of what do you do? I'm glad you asked it because I'm trying to work on answering it better and more succinctly. For a long time, the answer was baseball player. Then for a long time, it was professional wrestler. And those were easy to say and do because it's like one thing. That's what I am. Now there's a lot of different sort of moving pieces of parts in my life. So I'm not sure how to answer that. But I guess since we're on a podcast, I can go into depth on what it is. So I definitely host a podcast. I mentioned that it's called Something for Everybody. That's a big part of my life. I do a lot of speaking engagements. Most of my work lands in the mental health field because of what happened to me four years ago, which I can touch on too if we want to get there. 
But that sort of event in 2018 sparked everything that I currently do, which is a podcast based around mental health, speaking engagements, which surround basically what I've learned about my journey in mental health lessons that I think could be beneficial to those experiencing or not experiencing mental health stuff, but may experience something along the way like heartbreak and rejection and failure, which is sort of inevitable circumstances that we all sort of land on in life. And then I also have a mental health nonprofit that's called You Are Loved. That's basically the work we do is is mostly for professional wrestlers trying to set up mental health resources in the independent professional wrestling space because there's very little resources for those types of people. And so trying to set up support groups, communities, webinars, things of that nature. And then I live in Dallas. So the rest of the work of the nonprofit is centered around sort of DFW and putting on events and sponsoring people's treatment and things of that nature because a big barrier to getting mental health help is the financial barrier. So if we can eliminate that, increase the access, more people are going to get the help that they need and deserve. And so that's an important piece. And I think that covers it just off surface level, high resolution of what I do day to day. Yeah. Tell us about 2018 and what led to your focus on mental health and you are love and that direction of your life. So I, I think it's important to paint a picture of where I was in my life at that time. As I mentioned, I was a professional wrestler. And if you don't know, that's like WWE style wrestling. So you can think like The Rock, Stone Cold, Steve Austin, people like that. So my name at the time, my pretend wrestling name was uh, Jackson Stone. And that was my full-time gig. I was a full-time professional wrestler. I had no other jobs. I was traveling every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and then trying to find time to eat right and exercise and post on social media and all these sorts of things. But it's important to note this because my character at this time was a pretend movie star named Lights Camera Jackson. And so everything about my life at that point was performative. My name, my social media content, the way I interacted with people, everything was performative for the character that I was trying to portray. And yes, of course, people in my real life saw the real me, but I would say 80% of what I did was curated and performed, whether in the ring or outside of the ring. And learning about that now and sort of identity of myself, that's not great for mental health, for long-term sustainability, for durability of your overall well-being, things of that nature. Not stuff I really thought about back then, but something I do now. That's why I try to work in the professional wrestling space. That was sort of my life. I was living in Philadelphia with my best friend Wheeler, who was also a professional wrestler. And we were just sort of grinding it out, trying to make it on little money, but with a dream. And then in September of 2018, I get a phone call that my family lived back in Dallas still, which is where I currently live, that my big sister, Rachel, had taken her own life. And whenever something absolutely catastrophic, painful, and tragic happens, you, well, one, I didn't know what to do. I didn't think it was real. I thought someone was trying to prank me. Obviously, it was real. It is real. I've come to terms with that over the last four years. But you think, what is really important in life? And it sucks for me that it took something that awful and horrible to like punch me in the face and realize that I needed to start doing things a little bit differently. I needed to start aligning myself a bit differently. Not to say I didn't love professional wrestling. I still do. It's a beautiful thing that I decided to do. It's been a dream of mine since I was 13. But all the other stuff outside of it, performative nature, identity stuff, really came to a head when I lost my sister. Her name was Rachel, and she was two years older than me. I'm 30 now. She would have turned 33 this coming May. I'll turn 31 in June. 
And she was incredible. She was my biggest fan, my biggest supporter. She was there filming my very first professional wrestling match. She made my first few websites. She was a brilliant, brilliant person. She uh, graduated as an engineer. She worked at Raytheon as an engineer. And she struggled. She struggled deeply with her mental health for a very, very long time. For almost 11 years, she battled with severe depression, with bipolar disorder. At the end of her life, she was dealing with some schizophrenia. And she had some suicide attempts. She was hospitalized a few times. And so we did the absolute best we could. And there's a sobering fact here that I'm sure we can talk about, about loving or dealing with a loved one who's deeply struggling with their mental health. What can we do? How can we be there? What sorts of things can we think about? And there is some stuff, but ultimately it's the person. It's the person's decision. And I believe my sister fought very hard for a very long time. I believe that she did not want to actually die, but she wanted the pain to end. I've, I've taken me a long time to realize that and come to these sorts of conclusions. This sort of healing doesn't happen overnight. Grief is very challenging and very difficult. And some days are really horrible for me. Some days are quite good. But I know that talking about it has always helped. And so I appreciate the ability to talk about it. And so that happens in 2018. My whole life just gets rearranged and... I start thinking about mental health. I start thinking about what can I learn about it? How can I talk about it? What can I do to maybe prevent this from happening to someone else's sister in someone else's family? What can there be done about it? And so I just started having more conversations with people in my life. The three words of you are loved like popped into my life when I needed them most. And a lot of people think they're quite cheesy, but to me, it just, I was not in a great place. And I saw those words and I was like, well, I am, I am loved. I do have people who still love me. Yes, I am going through this thing that's very hard and awful and painful. And my sister was in a deep, dark despair of amounts of pain, but I am still loved. People are still loved. There is still love. And that's something that has resonated with me still. And that's why it's the name of my company. And so I decided to sell some t-shirts with you are loved on the front and donate them to American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which is an amazing resource for those looking for more suicide prevention knowledge. That's a good website to go to. And the t-shirt turned into conversations, which turns into a podcast, which then turns into a nonprofit. And I'm here with this being my day-to-day life. And off air, you said that you'd never seen yourself be in this point, like doing a podcast. And I feel the same at this point in my life. Probably if you asked me six years ago, I would be still being a professional wrestler running around in my sparkly underwear and talking about my fake name. But I'm here now talking about mental health and pain and grief and loss and suffering and how we can overcome that and things I've learned and warning signs and the ability to be there for one another and how we check in on each other and things of that nature. And so, yeah, that's where I'm at. And that's, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm so sorry for your loss and all that you've been through and so grateful that you are using your wisdom and your own growth to support other people in this space, although I wish it wasn't something that you were put in a position to do. I'm really interested in exploring as best we can this like intersection of that piece you said around warning signs and how we show up for each other and how we take care of each other with the like delicate balance of how we take care of ourselves when we're in close relationship with people we love who are suffering from mental health challenges. And 
I feel like there's a growing, especially since the pandemic, there's just a growing body of conversation around boundary setting and self-preservation and that that wasn't, at least in my consciousness, wasn't being talked about quite as openly a few years ago as it is now. And I'll be honest, in my life, I'll just speak for myself here, that one of the things that's been challenging has been the intersection of taking care of myself and showing up for the people in my life who suffer from mental health challenges. It feels like the one place where the boundary, I don't really feel comfortable or sure around what that line is. And perhaps maybe if I'm being super honest and vulnerable, afraid that if something were to happen to them and I had held a boundary that I would ultimately blame myself for not showing up more. And so I'm just curious, like how you talk about, think about, and support people in this really tender place. Yeah, it's very complicated. And there's a bunch of little sort of nuances to the whole thing. So we can think about suicide as sort of the overarching, like the ultimate terrible, bad decision, permanent decision that sort of people make. And what are the things underneath that that might lead to this sort of decision? Now, for the majority of cases, like one circumstance or one experience or one event doesn't normally lead to someone taking their own life. Now, for a very young person, that sometimes can be the case. But that's a sort of a different situation than what we're talking about. So we'll just put that aside for now. And we can talk about young people in a second. But for the majority of like adults who've had experience in life, over time, they decide that what they're feeling is enough. And now I think it's important to talk about what a person feels like when they get to the point where they want to take their own life, because there's a misconception that suicide is selfish. And that's just ultimately is wrong and not true. Now, initially, when someone takes their own life, that's a plausible and logical thing to think like, That's a selfish decision because there is a wake of sort of destruction and despair that is left in the people that are still alive, their life. Like my family's life has changed forever because of my sister's decision. But is her decision selfish? No, because if you think about a person at that point in their life, they're consumed by darkness and despair and they have been deteriorating from the inside out for a very long period of time. And so when they get to this point, they want to make this ultimate decision they're not thinking about anything good that's ever happened in their life. They're not thinking about their dog that may be sitting next to them. Maybe even think about the lunch they just got back from 20 minutes ago from their friend. They're not thinking about their parents or their loved ones or the vacation that they might go on. They are just consumed at this point with the dark thoughts of how the fuck do I get this pain to stop? How? And so that's why suicide is not selfish because they're not thinking about anything outside of getting rid of this pain that they feel like. And so they use this permanent decision for his temporary feelings. And so that's important to note when thinking about someone who's on the brink or on the verge of ending their own life or has some suicidal ideation or suicidal thoughts. Now, how can we stop or prevent that person from getting that far? Well, we have to, one, keep these conversations around mental health going. And we also have to, the secondly, most importantly, is create like these real genuine relationships. And now you're talking about here is like, how do I take care of myself while also not burning myself out taking care of someone else? That's important. All we're trying to do as the people in someone else's life 
especially if we know that they're struggling, is be like this guidepost, is be like this light at the end of the tunnel. Now, there's going to be times in your life where you're going to have to put aside your own well-being to sit in the dark with this person because you know they need it most at this point. But what you're doing is you're giving them permission to then go and save themselves because they're the only persons who can do that. And so, yes, you want to put that boundary in like, but the boundary comes with more vulnerability. If you, Mallory, say, if I call you and I'm like, hey, I'm not feeling very well right now, like I really need you. And you're like, I've had a rough day. I'm feeling sick. I'm overwhelmed. I've had all this stuff going on. And you're just honest about you to me. And I'm also honest about me to you. You're already doing that. You're already helping me just by saying how you feel. Because in this moment, I'm feeling very alone, like I'm the only one struggling, like I'm the only one dealing with anything. And I call you and you don't just blow me off. You don't lie to me. You don't say anything. You say, I'm also deeply struggling. I'm also deeply feeling these hard feelings. And yes, maybe you're not helping me, but you're making me feel like I'm not an absolute crazy person for dealing with some of these things. And so ultimately what I'm saying is there's already connection in you just being honest. So you're not having to cross your boundary by any means because you're not running over to that person's house. You're not clothing them. You're not hugging them. You're not sitting in the dark. Potentially, you might have to if you have the energy, space, and time to. All you're doing is just saying, I feel you. And that is a very powerful thing. And so there's sort of three steps you can kind of take with people. And it's like validate, appreciate, and refer. So you're validating their feelings because a lot of times mental health in our brain and our body is making us feel like, again, we're the only person in the whole world who feels this way. I'm struggling. No one else is struggling. I'm alone. I'm on this hill and that's it. And so someone comes to you saying, hey, I haven't slept very well in the last couple of nights, feeling stressed out. It's hard for me to get out of bed. I'm having some dark thoughts. I'm thinking like, "Mm, is the world better off without me? Like any of these things. You're just validating those feelings as a friend, as a person, as a mentor, as a colleague, as a person passing them by. And validation is as simply as like, I hear you, like I believe you. People don't really want to be given advice and they don't want to feel like they have to be fixed because they're not broken. They just want to be heard in their stance. They just want to be heard in their condition. So feeling like that, feeling that validation, and then having some appreciation for the fact that they actually shared something real and honest with you, which doesn't happen as often as we'd like it to. Now, your vulnerability is not for everyone all of the time. It's for certain circumstances. To be courageous and truthful is obviously courageous and truthful, which is a strength, not a weakness. And so when someone does that, they share with you, you validated them, and then you've appreciated them, the fact that they actually shared something you, simply by saying, thank you for telling me, like I believe you. And now you've created this moment in time, which could be very short moment, but you've made that person feel seen and heard. And once someone feels seen and heard, then they're more willing to trust you with something else. And so you go to this refer stage, which sounds a bit weird, but it's really just asking the person an honest question. Like, how can I be most helpful for you in this moment? For me, I'm not going to answer that question honestly if no one has validated or appreciated me. All they've done is like sort of listen and then go right to trying to fix me. Like that doesn't make sense to me. I don't trust you enough to tell you how I honestly feel. I can't tell you what I want and need because you haven't made me feel seen or heard or understood or validated. And so that's why those first two steps are important. That's why listening is always important. And then you get to this refer step. It's like, what can be most helpful for you in this moment? Hey, Will you just like sit with me here while I sign up for therapy? Will you just go for a walk with me? Will you help me get to the grocery store? I don't have any food and it's just like, I just haven't gotten there. Just like anything. Like most of the time, people just need a little bit of love and support. And that's all we're trying to be. 
again, because we can't save anyone, but we can be the person that shows them that they can save themselves. That's really what this is all about. We can be the light at the end of the tunnel that they see. We can be holding their hand in the dark saying, yes, you can. You can take one step forward. You can take one step forward. And then the person starts to believe that. And then they believe that they're the person who can get out of this. And then the next time they go through something challenging, they already have a back catalog knowing that they're a person who can overcome challenges with their support system. It's always important to have community and support systems. That's why we have to create genuine relationships. And we can create genuine relationships by being vulnerable, courageous, honest, truthful, and validating people and appreciating them for speaking out and asking them what they want and need and being able to give what they want and need. If we can't, we find someone else who can. And then we're even creating a deeper community of people who want to help said person. And so we're not lighting ourselves on fire to save someone else, but we are being courageous and truthful in the fact that we can help them. We can't save them, but we can help them. And there's a big difference in that. We can give them permission to want to save themselves, to see what's good in life to know that they have people who are there for them. And so hopefully it prevents them from getting to that really, really dark stage where they're consumed and they're not thinking of anything else except that thing. And so that's what's really checking in on your friends. That's what that means. Yeah, it could be a text. It could be a phone call. But it's really checking in on your friends. It's about like actual, deep, honest, real connection where people feel aligned with you in a way that's like unparalleled where you know that this person has your back no matter what. And that's just one person. You don't need 700 of them. You need one of them. Those are some important factors when it comes to thinking about this whole idea. There's so much of what you said there that I think is so important. And one thing I'll just say that I feel like I learned or it sparked a light bulb moment for me was I think sometimes we think about support in a very all or nothing way, or we think about boundaries as this like very, very hard line. And it's like, I'm either not available at all to you, or I'm giving my all to this situation. I think the way that you talked about that really makes it clear that like, first of all, connection can happen in a number of different ways and not and all forms of connection can be beneficial and meaningful to people without giving more than we have the capacity to give in that moment. And sometimes that connection is just through a moment of vulnerability. And it it made me think about like, there was one time, I can't even remember what this was, but my best friend was going through something. I was also having a really hard time, but I knew she needed some time together. And I was feeling like I didn't have it. And I was like, hey, I know this is weird. I have like 45 errands to run. Do you want to just come with me? I was like, I can't not do these things today, but I also want to be with you. And it seems like quality time is what you are seeking. I know it means like going to the dry cleaner with me, but do you (laughs) want to do this? And it was this super fun, random day where we did all my errands and we got time together. And I think we often just don't think about that middle thing or we think we're being selfish to not stop everything. And I remember even doing that, I didn't feel super comfortable doing that instead of just saying, yeah, I'll come over and sit with you all day. I felt a little bit more uncomfortable saying, here's what I need too. But I I just think that the way you talked about that really opens the door to think about those types of solutions that both serve you and the person. That's an absolutely beautiful example of just being with someone. We just think like it has to be all of these like big monumental moments that are going to change someone's life forever. It's just like these little things that are not little, but we view them as such. And how can we create more of those sort of micro moments, these moments of like 
positivity resonance where they're just like, I feel better now because of that. And I have something to look forward to or something to anchor myself to or something I can lean on the next time I might feel this way. Or, you know, you're building trust in another person. You're building trust in yourself. It's quite magical. And it's just a deeply part of being human, not just our mental health, but of being a person. Mm-hmm. You've said two things that are really interesting and I'm pulling them together, which is, so you mentioned that piece around your vulnerability is not for everyone, but it's for certain people and at certain times. And then you shared about your journey from this very like performance oriented person into sort of getting in touch more with like the realness of human connection and life that you want to be living. And I'm trying to not think about this in a binary way, but is the opposite of vulnerability, and I I get that my question is completely binary, but just roll with me for a second. Like, is the opposite of vulnerability performance or like what's in the middle? Like, what's that place where maybe we're not being vulnerable to the point that feels not the right person or not the right time to be vulnerable, but we also don't feel like we're in this like performance perfectionism mode? I think the middle ground is that you're still honest with yourself. And so if you ask me how I'm doing, and I know internally that I'm feeling a little overwhelmed, a bit tired, but I'm pretty good. And someone asks me that question, maybe they don't have time or space to hear my five to 10 minute idea about how I actually feel. And I had to stay up late because my kid woke up in the middle of the night and all sorts of things that happen that people deal with. But I know they don't have time for that because this is like our everyday casual, hey, how are you thing? Hey, how are you? Hey, how are you? But I'm honest with myself about how I feel. So I'm not performing in a nature unless I haven't come to terms with how I honestly feel. And I answer that question like, yeah, man, living the dream. Everyone knows that's a sarcastic remark. So we're performing for this person who sees us every day. Now, yes, they also probably have a bunch going on. And maybe they actually asked you honestly, because you guys have that relationship. And you should be honest in a five to 10 minute conversation or on the elevator up. But it's performing when you're lying to yourself. Not when you could say living the dream, if you like that, whatever. But you haven't come to terms with your own feelings and how you actually feel because you haven't taken the time to do a little inventory, to be an active participant in your own life, to come to terms with some of these hard emotions, to say that it might be a tough day. I might need a little bit more of this and a little less of that today to get me through because I'm feeling this way because this happened and this is causing me to do this. How can I still perform at work? Because I know that's my job and I need money and I need to supply stuff for my family, but I'm feeling a little off. Okay, what can I tweak a little bit throughout my day to make sure I still manage that stuff? That's taking an inventory. That's being honest with how you feel, but not telling everyone that all the time in the office because people have their own shit to deal with. But if someone actually asks you that, you should be able to answer that question because you're checking in on yourself first before you are answering that question to other people. So I think that's sort of where you toe the line about performing and sharing your vulnerability with everyone. I really appreciate and love that answer. I had a guest on here, Carol Robin, who studies the science of connection. And one of the things that she was talking about was that when we deeply connect, we are both letting ourselves be known and creating space for the other person to be truly known. And I think you're talking about like almost the step before that, which is like in order to let ourselves be known, we have to know ourselves. And that can be in a bigger way, but that can also be in the moment. Like the only way to truly let ourselves be known around how we're doing in a given moment is to know how we're doing in that moment. And if we don't have those 
self check-ins, then we're not preparing ourselves to be able to be in connection. 100%. Yeah. And sometimes we just don't have the language yet, the emotional flexibility to understand how we're actually feeling good, fine, sad. Like that's it. There's, there's way more emotions to a human. There's, we're so complex and diverse in how we think, feel, and act. And our mental health encompasses all of those things. And so it's also important to understand some more emotions that you might feel and experience and be able to say that. Are you disappointed? Are you overwhelmed? Are you feeling rejected? Are you feeling guilty, shameful, sad? Like whatever the case may be is if we can actually put a finger on that, then we can say, this is how I'm feeling. This is not who I am. I am not an overwhelmed person all of the time. I am just feeling this emotion right now and be able to address it and then deal with it in that manner. And so if we can lengthen our vocabulary around our emotions and then be honest with ourselves through that, then yeah, we're getting to know ourselves way better. And then we can say what we like and what we don't like instead of being timid to express our wants and needs because that could happen for many of reasons. Maybe when you were a kid, no one let you say what you want and need. There could be a lot of different things that go into that. And so we have to process those things too, but that's a sort of a different conversation. But yeah, like being able to expand your emotional language is important. So you can actually pinpoint the thing that you feel. And then when someone asks you like in a relationship or a partnership, or a friendship, like you can actually say that and that person can feel more connected with you because they understand that emotion. Maybe they don't understand the experience you went through because people don't go through the same things feeling the same way, but everyone understands rejection and heartbreak and sadness. Like I get that. And so if you can dial in on that a little bit more and have a, more emotions to play from, then it helps you understand yourself a bit more. Okay. You were just pinpointing some types of experiences that we have that we can name as like hard or uncomfortable experiences you were talking about rejection and some other moments where heartbreak where we deal with some emotional discomfort and i'm curious because the thing that sort of it sounds like opened you up to this journey that you're on is a really complicated emotional experience which is grief and loss and an experience that I hear from many and from my personal experience is really not linear in a lot of ways. And you were saying before, you know, takes a lot of time and ebbs and flows. And I feel like there are other emotional experiences that we have, like even heartbreak or rejection or things like that. You know, I coach particularly fundraisers. So for example, people who deal with rejection a lot of the time, they're very hard on themselves about how quickly they can get over it. And so there might be, as they're listening to this podcast, some, of course, rejection causes some emotional distress and all this thing. But in the moment, what they're saying to themselves is like, okay, Mallory, like get over it already. Or okay, Mallory, like this is not a big deal. Don't take it so personally. And there isn't a lot of like space or patience given to the emotional implications of not just rejection, getting ghosted, all these things that dysregulate us. And so I'm curious in your own journey and learning around grief, a process that is so complicated, like what are some of the things that you've learned or know about the space necessary to process emotions and how we can go on that journey from the really big things like what you went through in 2018 to what feel like those small things, but take up a lot of space. First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. 
It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash whatthefundraising or click the link in the show notes. It's about being able to sit with it. And I'm specifically talking about the hardest things that we go through in life. We have to really be willing to sit in the muck a little bit with our emotions. Because when things happen in our life, traumatic, painful events, people have some platitudes that they like to express that aren't very helpful in terms of our grief. One being everything happens for a reason. And two being, don't worry, you'll move on. Those two things don't make sense and they're untrue. Now, I understand why people say those things because they don't know what to say. The person that they see or love or friends with just went through a thing that they don't know how to respond to. And I get it. They're trying to say anything. They're trying to say something because they want to be of service and they want to be helpful and that's super kind. But now you're saying to this person that everything happens for a reason when their mom just died in a car crash. What the fuck's the reason? You going to tell me? You know, oh, I'm going to move on from losing my mother or losing my sister. And so we have to be, as people who are around the person experiencing the trauma, we have to be better with our language. And now I'm not telling you that you can't ultimately find a reason. I don't know if this, what I'm doing now, is the reason, but it's a purpose for my existence. Now, I take my sister back in a moment and give up everything else, but that's not possible. That just doesn't exist. And so I'm going to live in this reason. I'm going to live in this purpose, but I, I just have a hard time saying it's like a reason. Now, I also struggle between feeling grateful and feeling like shit because I'm grateful for my life right now. It's amazing having this conversation with you in the middle of the day, but I'm having this conversation with you because I've learned these things over the last four years because I lost my sister. And so I think I say that to say that we're allowed to feel mutual emotions at the same time. Like my cousin is going to get married next year and I'm going to go to her wedding and I'm going to have a great time. But I'm also going to be thinking about, well, where's my sister? She loved these weddings. She loved to dance. She loved to be with her family. These things can exist. And that's part of our grief process is knowing that you're not going to move on. Moving on means that you're ignoring everything that's ever happened previous. I don't want to forget about my sister. I don't want to move on. I don't want to move on from my mom or my grandma or my dog. I want to move forward with it. And so everything happens for a reason can be translated into you have to accept reality. You have to accept reality. And part of the grief process is anger and denial. Denial that this is not real. This couldn't happen to me. And you have to allow yourself to go through that. Feel angry. Feel denial. Do it. Yes. But when you move past it, you have to accept the reality that is. The person that you love the most is no longer alive. And this is your current reality. Now, you don't have to change your life in tomorrow. You don't have to make the reason happen tomorrow. You don't have to start speaking about this thing tomorrow. You don't have to do that ever. You have to do whatever works for you. This worked for me because it kept me alive when I needed it the most, which is like four years ago. And I didn't know what to do, so I had to do something. I'm like an action person. I'm an athlete. I'm like, I have to do something. So I did this. And now I feel totally aligned with this thing. But if you don't feel like speaking about it, you still have to talk about it to someone, maybe a professional, a friend, a support group, but it doesn't have to become your job. Now, everyone talks about that on social media. Turn your pain into purpose, your pain into path. Just turn your pain into where you can continue to live 
and be the best person you can be. You have to get in the muck of your grief with the anger, the denial, the shame, and then you have to accept reality and you have to try and move forward with this thing that is. And for me, the hardest emotion that I had to deal with and accepting that it was a real emotion that I felt was this sense of relief, relief that my sister was dead. Now, I could not in the first couple years think that that was a real thing. Relief, relief, like, oh yeah. But I'm in a suicide loss survivor's support group and people who are farther along in their journey than me were sharing these feelings, sharing these feelings that when they lost their loved one, they had to come to terms with a sense of relief. Why? How? That doesn't make sense. Well, my sister struggled for a long time and I knew she was struggling. And so I worried about her constantly, every single day. Sometimes the police came to our house. Sometimes she was hospitalized. Sometimes there was a suicide attempt. So it's a constant worry all the time about your loved one. Is this the day? 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 And then the day finally comes and they're no longer alive. And you have to think about that you're actually relieved that you don't have to worry anymore. That's tough. That's a real emotion. And it took me two years to actually admit that that might be an emotion that I was feeling with. And I had to sit with that sorrow, with that pain, because I would never move on outside of that. And so now I can talk about it. It still sucks to talk about and to say out loud and to see other people's reaction to how I could be relieved that someone I loved the most was no longer alive. But that's part of the process of grieving. And you have to, have to be willing to sit with that and accept it. And now once you accept it, there's some things that you can go about doing. You have to move into some sort of action afterwards to try and process these things and move forward with them. But that's like long-term grief. It's always going to be around. My sister's favorite musical artist was Mandy Moore, and I have Mandy Moore on my playlist on my car. And sometimes she pops on and I just start crying. And it's not a bad cry. It's just like, this is how I feel. And earlier in my process, I would try to shove that down. Like someone would be looking at me from across the highway into my car thinking like, why is that dude crying? That's a weirdo. It's like, nah, dude, I'm just like here in my body, like taking an hour drive to go pick up some t-shirts and like, I'm going to cry. So we're just allowing these feelings to come through. And then over time, you feel like you might get triggered at any moment because this thing always pops up. You get more control over it. So when you're in a meeting or at a phone call or at a family function or a thing like this, you start to have more control over it, but you're still feeling it and you're still accepting those emotions. You're not disassociating from it. You're not pushing them away. You still feel them, but you have autonomy over your body and your mind now. So you still feel it, but it doesn't take you over. And then when you're in a safe place, a quiet place, you're alone, you sort of allow those things to kind of flow through you and you can have that sense of, I can breathe now because we have to be able to self-regulate and self-control, but we have to have a time and place for those things as well. And then that can relate to sort of these mini moments or these mini grief things that happen on our day to day. It's sort of the same thing, but at a very small scale. You have to accept what happened. First, you have to be aware that you're feeling grief. Some people aren't aware that they're actually feeling grief. Like a lot of COVID was feeling grief. You didn't get to graduate. You didn't get to do this. You didn't get to do this. A lot of things died. A lot of people like all of that stuff, that's grieving. You have to be aware that you're actually in a grieving process because it's much different than anything else. It's not like burnout or depression. These things are different and have other root causes and they have different modalities to try and fix these things. So one, you have to be aware that you're actually in a grief process, that something happened, that something died or you had to remove something. Even in sort of a transformation journey, there's grief in that because you're killing off the person that once was. You're now becoming this better version of you and there's a grief process in that. So one, we have to become aware that that's actually a part of our existence. The second step would be just accepting. You have to accept it. 
as is. This is like my reality. I didn't get this. This happened. This happened. This is how it is. Accept, accept, accept. And then the final stage would be then moving into action. You have to do something about it, whether it's a group, a class, learning more about yourself, exploring some ideas, your mental health toolkit, whatever the case may be is, we have to sit with those things. That's part of the action part is like not neglecting it, not pushing it aside, but sitting with it saying, this is what it is. And then how can I go about not fixing it? Because you're not going to fix anything, but just like working with it and moving forward with it to continue learning and growing and sort of evolving from it. I really appreciate what you shared. And I I really just want to say, I think it's really brave. And I really appreciate the piece around sharing the relief emotion. And I also think it makes sense. And I think what it requires is exactly what you're pushing people towards, which is that emotions are not binary and that you can feel two emotions at once. And I think when we get really judgmental about people's emotions, we are thinking about it in a very tunnel vision way that if you feel this, you can't feel this too. And I think this whole conversation is around like, that's not true. And there are a lot of emotions that can coexist at the same time and being honest about the pieces that we feel goes a long way in our healing journey. So I'm really grateful that you were willing to share that with us. I'm curious, like thinking about your, who you said you were in 2018 before you lost your sister and this process of going from that to the person who is okay and comfortable and confident crying in his car, listening to Mandy Moore. (laughs) I just I know that folks who are listening to this are all different points of their journey in terms of how in touch they are with their emotions or even their awareness around their emotions all the way to the piece you were talking about around having the language to describe your emotions but can you just tell us about like how did you build that relationship with yourself to chisel away at the performer to the person we see today yeah, my identity is was always foreclosed outside of the one thing that I was doing. So good and bad, like I have sort of an obsessive nature about me, which is was good in extent. It got me got me very far in my baseball career, got me very far in my professional wrestling career, but nothing really outside of that was important to me. I mean, that sounds kind of bad. Like obviously my friends and my family were important and things like that, but like no other thing was that important. Like I was giving everything to that. And so if you asked me in 2018, was I performing? I would say, no, I said, I'm, this is me. This is who I am. I'm doing this thing. Now I look back on it with a different lens and a different perspective. And yeah, of course I was performing. I was pretending to be a movie star and I had like no money. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, what movie star? Like I was very resourceful. I was using all of these other people's cars and motorcycles and houses and homes to shoot some of these really cringeworthy videos that are on YouTube still, if you'd like to go look. I will be Googling Uh, your other name right after this. (laughs) You should. I have 150 podcast episodes. And if you can scroll under those, you got a bunch of wrestling videos. And I'm going to keep them up there because I'm proud of them. And I want people to be able to see sort of that people can make an evolution. They can make a change. They can grow. They can evolve. But they can also do something that they love. And that's what I was doing at that moment. But we can think about the scope of our identity in sort of a different way. To me, identity was my job. But identity is really our repeated beingness. Who was I being? I was being a person who was chasing his dream. I was being a person who was going after what he wanted. Like those are good qualities to have, but I was foreclosed on everything else and probably wasn't spending as much time at home as I wanted to or needed to, but I was traveling and I was on the road and I was doing these things. 
And sometimes it takes that event to reorganize your life, to reevaluate. And so now I see my identity in a different way. As I mentioned at the top, trying to explain my profession is very hard because I don't know what to say. I don't want to say I'm just this one thing. I'm a multitude of things. I live through my values now. That's what my identity is. I, I aim to be, try and be honest and kind and hopeful. And that's who I want people to see me as not a guy who is a podcaster or a speaker or whatever. Like those are things that I do and I enjoy them. They're part of my being, but that's not who I am exactly. Who I am exactly is a son, a brother, a partner, a friend, someone who shows up for people and himself, you know, things of that nature. And that's a hard answer to have when people ask you like, who are you? Or, But that's how you show people. That's how you show up in the world. And so that's who people really know who you are. And so when they talk about you behind your back, yeah, they might mention the fact that you're this or that, but they're gonna say, nah, he shows up me for me when I need it or she shows up for me when I need it and he's kind and he'll always be there and he's a good dude or she's she's a great girl or like whatever the case that's what they're really saying but it's easier for people to connect off sort of a job but really what they're talking about is who you are and so you have to make a very concrete decision about the person that you want to become who do you want to be because you can become whoever you'd like you can't do whatever you'd like because some people have limitations on talent and physicality and things like that but you can be whoever you want you can be whoever you want. You just have to make the fundamental commitment to be that person. And so I'm nowhere near perfect. I'm working on things every single day. I'm trying to figure it out. That's why I have a podcast so I can talk to people smarter than me for free all of the time and they can give me insight and wisdom. It's amazing. I highly suggest everyone start a podcast because it's an excuse to do just that, to learn from doctors. You just told everyone my secret. I mean, it's unbelievable. And so... I can learn nuggets of wisdom every day that I can apply directly to my life and still meet with my suicide loss survivors support group. And I have communities and friends, like I listen to other podcasts, obviously, and read books and just like trying to figure it out because everyone's just trying to figure it out. If anyone tells you that they've got it all figured out or they're perfect, that person is lying and they need some extra help and support, trying to get them to be honest with themselves too about their circumstances and what's going on because we're all just trying to figure it out. And so just a few things that I've learned along the way, but you can change, you can grow, you can adapt, you can evolve, you're not stuck. Like you might feel stuck, but you can get out of the situation that you're in. It might take effort, but you gotta think about the consequences of inaction versus the consequences of action. What's worse, staying in the same position you're in, thinking 10 years down your life, where you're like a little bit unhappy now, and you feel like, yeah, it's like not that bad. Okay, think about 10 years from now, that bad will turn into, this is really fucking bad. But the consequences of action are like, this is going to be really hard. Like, I have to get all of this shit together. I have to figure out my resume if I want a new job. Like, I got a bunch of holes. I didn't work for like this a bit period here. I might have to do some classes and some courses. I might have to like put myself out there and get rejected 150 times and only have two emails turned back. And I might have one job interview. Like, that's hard. But that's the consequences of action could potentially be that you live the life that you want. And so you have to think a little bit more downstream about that. And you can think about that in your identity as well. Like, okay, you're this person now, what can you be in five years? Because over the five-year time, you can just build an undeniable stack of proof that you are the person that you said you were gonna be based on just work. That's like me to show up. That's like me, that's like me. And you build that. And then when you do have a bad day or a setback or a heartbreak or someone rejects you or you feel disappointed, it's just like you feel that emotion. You're like, yeah, I feel like this. But you have this stack of proof that you can get back to it instantly because you are that person. And you're not ignoring or denying those emotions. You're feeling them, accepting them, but moving through them because you're not that thing. You're this other thing that you've created and curated and actually done in a credible, productive, fundamental way. 
And so that's how you can think about identity and building that through a situation or whatever you're in. There's so many nuggets of gold in what you've just said. I was like sitting here like, okay, how can I make this like four different podcast episodes? (laughs) Thank you. Just thanks for sharing all of that, for giving folks that hope, that permission for self-permission in an ongoing way. And yeah, and thank you for all the wisdom, how much I got to learn today from you and just everything that you do to support this space around mental health and mental wellness. I'm really grateful. Thank you for allowing me on your great show. And thanks for giving me to your listeners. I appreciate it. Yeah. I'll make sure there are links below for folks to connect with you directly to learn more about the organization if they're able and interested in supporting. Is there anything else you want to make sure you get to leave folks with today? I'd say if you're feeling not your best or things have happened in your life, accept them, find the situation that you're in to be your situation and be honest with that. And think about the tiniest little action you can take that will move you forward. And that action is everything. And you can do it. You're the person who's capable of doing that thing. I know you are. You've done it before. You can do it again. One small foot forward, one in front of the other. That's important. It means more than you might ever know. So if I can help in any way, please directly reach out. I'm available. Wow, I appreciated this episode so much and learned a tremendous amount myself. Here are a few of the top things I'm thinking about. Number one, create genuine, honest relationships with those around you, especially if you know they're struggling with mental health issues. And this doesn't mean overextending yourself, but it means offering what you can in genuine and honest ways. This leads me right into number two, which is to be mindful of setting boundaries while also being there for someone who is struggling, giving them the space and opportunity to seek help and find other support where they need it as well. Number three, practice appropriate levels of vulnerability and honesty when discussing your own struggles with others. It can help create a sense of connection and understanding. Number four, Self-awareness is crucial for emotional honesty and can be developed by asking ourselves questions about how we feel and taking the time to explore our emotions. I loved the way Erin talked about increasing our emotional vocabulary. Grieving is a complex and non-linear process that requires acceptance of various emotions, both positive and negative. Sitting with our emotions, especially during difficult times or after a loss, can help us process our feelings, come to terms with our situation, and ultimately move forward in a healthy manner. I also really appreciate the way that he talked about being able to hold two emotions at the same time. Okay, for additional takeaways and tips inside this episode, head on over to malloryerickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Aaron and our amazing sponsors, Give Butter. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week.
Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.